Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be reading through chapter 2, verse 3. As we continue on in our series, Living Hope in a Hopeless World. Peter was writing to a group of persecuted Christians who were suffering for their faith. They were a lot like you and me. They had never seen Jesus, yet they believed in him. They, hadn't, they didn't see Jesus then, but they continued to believe in him because they had a word, a message that they had believed. The same message that's come to us. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we believed it. And it sustains our faith. But as they were going through difficulties, what they need to know is, can I really continue to trust this word? Is it really true? Can I put my hope in this? And Peter writes them this whole letter, reminding them of how to have a living hope. And in this section, he focuses on the hope that we can have because of God's word. Here's the way Peter records it in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. And it is truth. And in a world of so many voices, where the values that we share are shifting like sand, it's nice, it's reassuring, it's encouraging to have a word that never changes, a word that is absolute, a word that is true. All of humanity will help be held accountable to this, whether we recognize it or not. And so I thank you for the hope that can be ours today who have believed. May you encourage us today in this living hope as we learn the hope of God's word. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of man is unreliable. Not because they intentionally lie, or not always because they're trying to deceive, but sometimes we just don't get it right. I'm not right all the time. In fact, I'm wrong a lot. And it isn't because I try to lie, because I don't, and I don't try to deceive. It's just that I don't know everything. And so I say things, and I plan things, and I espouse certain things, and they don't come to pass because I don't control them, and I don't know all things. Humanity has a voice that's pretty unreliable because it's limited. I was reading a piece in the Futurist magazine written by a writer named Laura Lee. And she was talking about some of the worst predictions of all time by very knowledgeable and gifted people. Like this one, for example. 2,000 years ago in AD 100, a man by the name of Julius Sextus Fontanus said, inventions have long since reached their limit. And I see no hope for future developments. 2,000 years ago, he was saying that. Or how about this one by journalist Junius Henry Brown in 1893? 
Law will be simplified over the next century. Lawyers will have diminished and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. <laughs> now, I thank God for lawyers. They've been a huge help to me in our church many times, but that guy was really off the mark on some of those things. Or how about this one by computer scientist John Van Neumann, who uh, wrote this in 1949. Some of you are using a computer equipment that was invented in 1949. But anyway, like this. It would appear we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. Or one of my favorites from Alex Lute, who is president of the Lute Vacuum Cleaner Company. Never heard of him. He was quoted in the New York Times, June 10th, 1955 issue. Nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners will probably be the reality in 10 years. Nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners. That'd be wonderful. I have a radioactive vacuum cleaner. Anyway, how about this one? Bob Metcalf, InfoWorld, 1995, he wrote this. I predict the internet will go spectacularly supernova and in 96, 1996, catastrophically collapse. You know, every one of these things that I read, and there's a lot of them, you have noted surgeons to Queen Victoria in 1873 saying there will never be surgeries within the abdomen. These people weren't lying. They weren't trying to deceive. They weren't naive. They were sharing what they really believed. But the problem is you can't put your hope in the word of man because they don't see everything. Their view is very limited. That's why I went on at the end of this article to say, aren't you glad that your faith does not rest on human words? but on the sure word of God. That's what Peter was writing to these Christians to help solidify their living hope. You haven't believed just anyone. You've believed God. We're in a series of messages from 1 Peter called Living Hope in a Hopeless World. And one of the reasons there's so much hopelessness is that people don't know who to believe. Whose word do you trust? Who has the solutions we can count on? What do we put our hope in? that will not let us down. Peter told these suffering Christians that our hope is not rooted in the word of men, but in the living and enduring word of God. For he said in verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The word living means actually alive. It's operational. It's able to affect change because it's working. Enduring means it's incorruptible, it's unchanging. It has always been, and it will always be, reliable truth. He tells these believers that even in their trials, they can have a living hope, because the word they have trusted, upon which these trials have come, is the very word of God. And so Peter reminds them, our hope is rooted in the truth of God's word. Why does God's word give us such hope? Peter tells them, because God's word is eternal truth. And God's word is what helps us to grow up. We can put our hope in God's word because God's word is eternal truth. Peter said in verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Many people today believe that God exists to serve them. And we may not couch it in those words, but even many Christians believe that. In fact, all you have to do is listen to them, how they speak, when God doesn't meet some expectation that they think God ought to meet. Most people believe God exists to serve them. Which is why they often treat God's word like Pandora Radio. Now, if you're not familiar with Pandora Radio, Herschel York, pastor of Buck Run Baptist Church in Kentucky and associate professor and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, was once writing a piece where he said this, one of the marvels of the Internet age is a thing called Pandora Radio. When you listen to a radio station on terrestrial or satellite radio, you have to listen to every song played. You can change the channel, but you can't change the song. You're stuck with whatever you're given. But that's not so on Pandora. On Pandora, you can put in different singers, bands, songs that you like, and they'll use an algorithm to parse the music that you list. So the algorithm will ask, is this rock, soft rock, hard rock? Is it antiphonal? Does it have a guitar lead? Does it have a front man? See, it analyzes what you like, and then it can incorporate other similar songs and artists into the mix. And by each song, Pandora puts a thumbs-up sign or a thumbs-down sign. If you click on the thumbs-up, it'll put in more songs in the mix, just like the one you're listening to. If you put a thumbs-down, it'll take that song out and offer you new songs to consider. Michael York said, or excuse me, Herschel York said, in an age where customization of lifestyle and belief has become the norm. Pick your own God, pick your own Bible, pick your own beliefs, pick your own gender, pick your own whatever. It's the norm. He said this is often the way we approach the Bible. We tailor and customize our view of Scripture and ultimately our view of God. It's like we have our own internal algorithm all the time, sorting through and processing the biblical data to say, oh, I'll accept this part, but I don't like this one. Or I'll preach that part, but I could never preach that. Or I'll believe this over here, but I'm never going to believe that. It's like we have our own customizing of what we want to believe and what we don't. People, the Word of God doesn't change. It isn't customizable. It is relevant for every culture and every generation because it's the same eternal truth in every culture and every generation. And you can't pick and choose what you like. It's an all-or-nothing thing. We may not understand it all, but you cannot change it. You see, that's what Peter was teaching to encourage these Christians to remember that their hope was based on the eternal, unchanging truth of God's Word. That's why he said, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
and this is the word that was preached to you. You have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. That word purified is the word for morally, moral cleansing. You have been morally purified by drawing close to God, whom you have obeyed by listening to his truth. It's written in the present tense, which means it's a new state in which you are now living because you have been born again by be believing and obeying God's word. And this word has purified you. It draws you closer to God. And it has a purifying effect. It's the same thing that the Lord's brother James was writing in James 4, verse 8, when he said, come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's the same thing John was writing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Look at this. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. The evidence of this, Peter said, is that you're loving each other deeply from the heart. You didn't used to do that, but now you do. This came to you, he said, this purifying effect came to you by obeying the truth. The word obeying means to put yourself under the authority of what you hear. It's what we want our kids to do, to put themselves under the authority of what we're telling them, because they believe it. Peter said, you put yourself under the authority of God's truth, and it's producing this in you. Truth, the word for objective reality, it doesn't shift, it doesn't change, it's an absolute. You believe this, Peter said, and you were born again, you were transformed, you were made new, and this word you believe is eternal truth. And Peter quotes for them, for them the words of the prophet Isaiah, who 700 to 750 years earlier had been saying the same thing to another generation of people who needed to put their hope in God's word. And he quotes it in verse 24, for all people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Men and their schemes, Peter said, all their glory that they build, it's passing away. The people are like grass and their glory is like a flower. It doesn't last. How many people invest their whole life in things that are fading and will one day be gone? Peter said the word of God is forever. And this is the word that's preached to you. That's the word you're hearing, he's telling them. And that's the word we're hearing today. The divinely inspired, faithfully transmitted word of God. Near the end of his life, the apostle Paul was in a prison cell because of his commitment to Jesus. And he's writing what may have been the last letter of his life to his young son in the faith who was leading the church at Ephesus at the time, Timothy. And he tells Timothy, remember, if you're going to live for Jesus in a pre-Christian world, or if we are going to live for Jesus in a post-Christian world, it's not going to be easy. Not everyone's going to like it or accept it. 
And the thing that will keep you strong is you have your hope rooted in a word that is truly from God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, suffering. Which kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Men did not write the Bible. They may have held the pen, but God was doing the writing. And yet there are still people today who don't believe that who don't know that this word is faithfully given, faithfully recorded, tra faithfully transmitted. I was sharing earlier, I had a boss when I worked for the park department up in Washington. He was a good old redneck boy, and uh, I got along great with him because I grew out of the same stock. He's the kind of guy, if you were working in the park, and you didn't have your shirt on, he'd walk up, he'd grab you by the chest hair, and he'd rip a chunk out just to get your attention. He was one of those kind of guys. And I used to share Jesus with him. And he would say, you believe that nonsense? Where do you get that? I said, I get it out of the Bible. Oh, you believe that? I said, yeah. I said, I remember asking him, where do you think the Bible came from? I'm not kidding. This is what he said. I think a few drunk guys got together for a weekend. They want to invent a, they want to invent a religion and a God, and that's what they came up with. And I said, you're serious. You, you really believe that? You know, it's hard to deal with that kind of ignorance. But there are people who have differing views of God's word and they don't put stock in it. They may not be as radical as his, but they don't have an accurate picture of what the Bible is. I remember when I was at college studying Greek and Hebrew, which I don't highly recommend to anybody unless you like personal punishment and late nights, but anyway. Our professor was one of the guys who wrote the concordance to the NIV, he, a brilliant language scholar. I remember we came back from spring break. And he said, on spring break, I went to the Museum of London. He said, wow. He said, yeah, they've got the full scroll of the book of Isaiah rolled out in a glass case from 200 BC from the Dead Sea Scrolls. 200 B.C. Isaiah would have written that about 7 or 750 B.C., so it was a 500-year gap. And we said to him, Dr. Goodrick, you read the language. Did you read the scroll? Oh, absolutely. I read it all. And I said, well, what did the scroll say? You know what he did? He picked up his Bible, he turned to the book of Isaiah, and he said, this is exactly what it says. It hasn't changed. 
and all those transmissions and everything else, God has overseen its transmission. You see, that's why when Peter was writing his second letter to this group of people, he wanted to remind them that their hope in the word was secure because it wasn't the word of men. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were there, and they heard the voice, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. You don't forget moments like that. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message of something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter's writing this because he knows that the further people get from a source of truth, the easier it is for them to believe a lie about that truth. And there were people even in that day who were beginning to say, the Bible isn't faithfully committed. The Bible isn't faithfully transmitted. The Bible isn't faithfully recorded. Peter was saying, we were there. It's like people today trying to tell us that the Holocaust didn't happen or JFK wasn't killed in Dallas. There are people trying to convince people of that, but the problem is there's still those, some of us who are still alive, who were there. And so you're never going to believe that garbage when there are people there saying, we saw it, we heard it. These people are trying to deceive you. Peter's saying, we were there, we saw it, we heard it. It's faithfully recorded. You know that word you're believing? It's the same word God gave to us. It's eternal. People, in whose word are you putting your hope? You're listening or trusting somebody. You putting it in mine? I hope not. The voices of the culture? The intellectual elite? Or are you trusting in the word of God, which is eternal truth? Peter said, you have trusted this living and enduring word. It's eternal truth. And you have a living hope that's secure. And not only because God's word is eternal truth, but we can put our hope in God's word because God's word is what helps us to grow up. Peter said in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that, you, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Christian life isn't just a destination, it's a journey. It's been called the greatest rescue mission of World War II, Operation Halard, H-A-Y-L-A-R-D, Operation Halard. Dave Harvey, in his book, Rescuing Ambition, tells what happened. Late in the war, American bombers were sent on a dangerous mission, or missions, over southern Europe to cripple the Nazis' oil supplies. 
Hundreds of crews in flying tin cans soared through the storms of anti-aircraft shells. Many American pilots were forced to bail from their shot-up planes, or they perished. And by the way, next weekend, Lord willing, we're going to be remembering the ones who didn't make it. But the injured airmen drifted by parachute into occupied Yugoslavia expecting to be captured or killed, but instead on the ground, remarkable rescue teams were already in place. Serbian peasants took it upon themselves to track the path of these floating flight crews. Their sole mission was to grab the flyboys and bring them to safety before the Nazis arrived. Risking their own lives, the peasants fed and sheltered the downed airmen. These rescued men were in friendly hands, but they were still on enemy soil. They still had to escape. The story of what became known as Operation Haylard builds toward a daring mission, secret landing strip, and a clandestine evalu evacuation plan. Amazingly, those Serbian peasants rescued every single American airmen who landed, over 500 in all. But here's the fascinating subblock to the rescue. To travel to the evacuation site, the airmen had to spend weeks following these Serbian freedom fighters. They had no idea where to go. Only the freedom fighters knew where the evacuation site was. Despite the profound language barriers, the direction, the pace, and the destination were all in the hands of their rescuers. The men had been saved from their enemy, but their real journey had just begun. They still had to walk to know freedom. Dave Harvey said the, op the story of Operation Halyard sheds light on an important spiritual reality. To be rescued from something sets us on a path toward for the airmen, he said, it was a journey of survival. For us, it's a journey of faith. The one who saved us is now calling us to walk with him. It's non-negotiable. Though snatched from spiritual death, we soon discover that the Christian life isn't an arrival, it's an adventure. Christ rescues us, then points us to the path of following him. It's a path towards growth and maturity and Christ-likeness. It's a path away from sin and toward Jesus. It's called growing up. And the Word of God is essential to that growth. That's why Peter was calling these Christians to remember that all that they were facing, if they would stay close to God's Word, God would use those things to grow them up in Christ. Peter told them, you've believed, you've obeyed, you've been born again, but the journey isn't over, it's just beginning. That's why he said in verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word grow up is the word for mature. It means to spiritually increase. As a child grows and matures physically, so you must grow and mature spiritually. It is the natural course of things. 
When a child doesn't grow physically, emotionally, in other physical ways, we know something is wrong. When a Christian doesn't grow spiritually, we know something is wrong. Grow up in your salvation, he says. Salvation is an act, and it's a process. When we confess Christ and receive him into our lives, we are born again, we are saved. Peter told these Christians, you have been born again, you have believed, you have been made new, you have passed from death to life. But the salvation process is ongoing. You've been saved from sin's penalty, but now there's a process you've entered. It's a process of growing up to become more like Jesus, and that process is called sanctification. Sanctification is a very big word to describe how we're moving away from sin and closer to Christ. Sanctification means we're being set apart from sin, set apart for God. That's why our salvation is spoken of in the scriptures in three tenses, which can sound confusing. We've shared this before. The Bible clearly teaches you have been saved. It also teaches you are being saved. It also teaches you will be saved. And people ask, well, which is it? I have been, I am, or I will be? It's all. You're moving away from sin, living for Christ. You have been saved from sin's penalty when you believed and were born again. You are being saved from sin's power. That sin used to own you, but it's broken now. It doesn't own you anymore. You still sin, but it doesn't control your life. Jesus does. And you are being saved from that power. And you will be saved when you are removed completely from sin's presence, and it will no longer have any effect in your life. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. And the word of God is essential to that growth process. You see, that's why Jesus, when he was with his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper the night before he went to the cross, that's why he prayed the way he did for his disciples, for other believers, and for you and me. And he prayed for himself. And in this longest prayer of Jesus, he prays that we would be set apart or sanctified by the word of truth. Listen to this prayer in John 17, verse 13. Jesus, praying to the Father, says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that you may have, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. I've set myself apart for you, Father, to die on a cross that through me and faith in me they too may be set apart for you. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for the 12 in the room. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That was Peter, but that was the believers here in Turkey. That's the believers through the century, and it's, it's you and me who have believed. We are the answer to his prayer. 
Jesus prays that we'll be set apart for God, that we'll grow up. Part of what that sanctification does, this growing up process does, is that the Spirit of God comes to live in us, and he helps us to put off the old self and put on the new self to be like Christ. That's why Peter said, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Get rid of the old and put on the new. People, we can't do that in our own strength. Only God can do that. And he will as we crave the pure spiritual milk like newborn babies. I've had three kids. Lord willing, sometime this week I'm supposed to have a fifth grandbaby. I have watched babies nurse and under most conditions when things are healthy, they take to that thing naturally. They have a craving for it. And once they get it, they're off and running. It's built in. It's built in. That's the words that Peter is using. That if you are really a child of God, there will be a natural inclination to desire God's word, the pure spiritual milk of the word, because you know that you need it to grow. And the Spirit of God, when he comes to live in you, the word is the food of the Spirit. The Spirit of God in you craves this word. So don't quench the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit, you feed the Spirit. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, inverse slander of every kind, of every kind, and crave the pure spiritual milk. The milk of God's word is what we need. But as you grow on the milk, this word also becomes the solid food. If a baby stays on milk too long, it becomes to work against them. They gotta have solid food to get stronger and mature. The word of God is both the milk and the solid food. See, that's why it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 5 to another group of Jewish believers who were being persecuted. Hebrews 5.11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. See, but there's a lot of folks who move away from this word because they don't want to become like Jesus. They don't want their lives set apart for God. Jesus said, this is the word that speaks of me. The Bible is not primarily a handbook for life. It is not primarily a problem-solving manual. The word of God is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This is where we meet him. That's why Peter said, like newborn babies craves pure, pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That phrase, now that you have tasted, is literally if you have tasted or since you have tasted. In other words, if you have really tasted of this growth in your life, if you have really tasted of the goodness of God, you have drunk in what the word is and what it can do, you naturally crave more of that because you want more of the Jesus of this word. It's like giving a kid a piece of candy or a sip of Coke. If you don't want them to like sweets, don't do that, because once they taste that, they're going to want it again. Peter's saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you're not living off somebody else's faith. You have experienced this. Then one of the signs is you will crave it. You will want it. But you see, since this is the revelation of Jesus, you can't keep coming back to this book if you want to go live in sin. You can't let the moral cleansing of drawing close to, to God be in your heart and mind because you can't stand it and go back out and do what you want to do. I think it was D.L. Moody who once said, this book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. That's why so many Christians drift away from this. because they're not craving this pure spiritual milk because they're not really craving Jesus. And so they keep falling. They're like the little kid I read about who migrated or graduated from his crib to a big boy bed, but he kept falling out every night. And his parents would find him on the floor in the morning. So his mom asked him one time, honey, what, why do you keep falling out of bed? And the little boy said, I don't know. I think I just stay too close to where I got in. That's why a lot of Christians keep falling. Because spiritually, they're just staying too close to where they got in. They're saved, but they haven't grown. Because you can't grow apart from the Word. It is the food of the Spirit. And Peter said, when you have tasted the Lord and His goodness, and you see that growth begin to happen in your life, it fuels the hope, the hope of God's word. Bruce MacGyver is a retired pastor. He wrote an article some years ago in Guidepost magazine called Stories I Couldn't Tell While I Was a Pastor. Wouldn't you want to read some of those? <laughs> now, when you read that, your first thought is, would he be saying anything about me if you've been in his congregation? Bruce MacGyver, Pastor Bruce, had a heart problem. And um, on the eve of his open heart surgery, he said to his doctor, cardiologist Dr. Dr. Dudley Johnson, who is a noted cardiologist, he said to him, can you fix my heart? The physician, known for being shortened to the point, said, sure. And he walked out the door. That's all he said on the eve before heart surgery. Sure. Following the 12-hour surgery, McIver asked his doctor, Johnson, again, in light of the blocked arteries that I had when I checked into the hospital, how much blood supply do I now have? All you'll ever need, replied the, the terse surgeon, and he walked out the door. 
Upon his discharge from the hospital, MacGyver's wife, Luana, asked the doctor, what about my husband's future quality of life? Dr. Johnson stopped, he paused, he turned, he looked at me, he said, I fixed his heart. The quality of his life is up to him and his choices. See, God would say the same to us. We were desperately sick in sin. We had a deep heart problem. And God, who is the great physician, has fixed our heart. He's made it new. We've been born again because we believe this word. But we're on a process with God now. We're on a journey. And the quality of this life is going to be based around the choices we make and whose word we listen to. Who do we believe? Are we going to listen to the voice of culture? Are we going to listen to the loudest voice that we hear? Are we going to listen to our friends? Are you going to listen to your pastor? People are like grass. And all their glory fades like a flower. But the word of God is forever. It's eternal truth. It's the means by which we grow up. It gives us a living hope. That's why Peter said in verse 24, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, thank you for this reminder. In a world of syncretism and shifting sand, it's nice to know there is one word that we can trust that will never change. Lord, we don't understand everything that's in here. We just don't. But over time, you begin to teach us and you illuminate our understanding and you help us to see things we never saw before. And like these believers to which Peter wrote, God, we can go through hardship and trial and all kinds of things, disease and illness and relational failures, financial setbacks and even persecution. But if we hold on to this word, we will have a hope. And those who hope in the Lord will never be disappointed. Your word is truth. It helps us grow. And I'm praying, God, that through this word, we will be a people that has a living hope in a hopeless world. And we'll thank you in your precious name.